I referenced this book last week, and I want to uh, explore it with you again. It's a great book by Stephen Ambrose. It, it documents the lives of Meriwether Lewis and General George uh, Clark. They are well, William Clark. I always want to call him George. William Clark. We know him best as uh, William and Clark, right? 1803, uh, President Jefferson, he tapped Meriwether Lewis on the shoulder and said, I want you to do something unprecedented, unheard of. We do not know a whole lot about the Western frontier. And so would you select somebody and a team and go and march across these, this wild place that we call America and head toward the Pacific Ocean and document everything that you come across? because I know you're a man of, of detail, you're a brilliant man, and so get you a team together and go. And so they did in 1803 from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It took them three years, you imagine that? Three years to go from Pittsburgh to the Pacific Ocean. Today that would take us just a few hours if we were on, uh, on a plane, but they went, and it was quite a fascinating journey. It was so fascinating that Stephen Ambrose entitled his whole book, he called it Undaunted Courage. He said, because that's exactly what these men had to possess in order to uh, go across the unknown. And William Clark, I mean, uh, yeah, William Clark, when he was, um, he was asking Meriwether Lewis, he said, uh, you know, do you think we could be a team? Do you think the two of us could, could go? I know the president has asked you, uh, Meriwether Lewis, you're a close friend. And I was just reading this last night. Of all times, I was picked back up Jefferson's biography and I was reading in 1801 when President Jefferson just became our third president, he, he invited Meriwether Lewis, who was 26 years of age, to come and live with him in the White House. I did not know that until last night. And so I find out something new. I'm gonna share it with y'all. And so he did, he's their close friends. And so then he, he tapped him on the shoulder and he said, but I want you to go in 1803, and he did. And this is a letter that Clark sent to Lewis. He said, I will cheerfully join you, and I will partake of all the dangers, the difficulties, and the fatigues, and I anticipate the honors and the rewards of the result of such an enterprise. This is an undertaking freighted with many difficulties, but my friend, I do assure you that no man lives with whom I would prefer to undertake such a trip as yourself. Ambrose describes Lewis. He's in, in 1805. He's in the unknown country, really, of Montana. And he writes this about Lewis. He says, he was entering a heart of darkness, deserts, mountains, great cataracts, warlike Indian tribes. He could not imagine them because no American had ever seen them. But Far from causing apprehension or depression, the prospect brought out the very best, his fullest talents. He knew that from now on, until he reached the Pacific and returned, he would be making history. He was exactly what Jefferson wanted him to be. He was optimistic, he was prudent, he was alert to all that was new about him. His health was excellent, his ambition was boundless, his determination was complete. He could not, he would not, contemplate failure, end of quote. The word undaunted, by the way, means not intimidated, not to be discouraged by difficulty or danger or disappointed. And I thought, what an excellent title for a book about Meriwether Lewis and Mr. Clark. And you know, I thought about the apostles. When they are standing there in the presence of the Sanhedrin, the very people just weeks before had tried Jesus Christ and had crucified him and, I mean, tortured him. And those same people, those apostles, they're standing before this, this tribunal, if you will, this council of men. And when we read the text in a moment, I want, to, I want you to try to capture it with your mind's eye. The Senate, if you will, the Sanhedrin, they would be seated and the 12 apostles would be standing before them. And there are 70 in the Sanhedrin, and there are 12 of the apostles. Of course, they are meant to be intimidated, and they are standing there, and they are accusing them and saying, why have you preached in this man's name? Why are you trying to bring this man's blood upon us? Why are you people? Did we not expressly forbid you to preach in his name? And there you go, you're preaching in his name. And so it is a very, it could be, a very daunting, a very intimidating scene, but man, these apostles 
with undaunted, unmitigated, undeterred courage, they stand there and give a bold testimony for Christ. I tell you, they are my heroes. And as I read this text with you today, I hope that you'll just enter into this, this real story of courage as the disciples really give us a, a template, a model that we can emulate in our day when we feel intimidated, or when we feel shy, or when we feel like maybe we're the only ones who will stand for Christ in the public school, or the only one who will stand for, Lord, for the Lord in our office, or the only one who will stand for the Lord maybe in your neighborhood. Take, take great courage and comfort and motivation as I read to you this amazing passage of Scripture. I'm in Acts chapter 5, and I want to read beginning in verse 27, and we'll read through verse 32. And I got to tell you before I read it to you, it is, it is so powerful. Peter is going to stand up, and he's going to preach a message in the, I mean, really in the lion's den. If you can just, in a moment, just, just capture this very thought. The very people who crucified Jesus weeks earlier, I am standing before them, and they have told me, do not speak anymore about his name. And here's what happens. Now, when they had brought them, they set them before the council. They set them, but remember, the apostles are standing, and it's the Sanhedrin that is seated. And the high priest, Caiaphas, asked them, saying, hear, hear the accusatory manner in his speech, did we not strictly command you? Do you hear it? Do you feel it? Did we not tell you to never again teach in, now watch this, this name. Now, he's not going to mention his name. He's not going to mention the name of Jesus, but he is going to refer to him, watch this, as that guy, this man, or his name. And look, he says, you have saturated. You have filled Jerusalem with your didache. That's the Greek word. It's where we get this word uh, Didache, or to, to teach. He said, you have filled the whole city with his doctrine. And now you intend to bring, did y'all see it? This man, not, not Jesus. Remember, this is Caiaphas, and he's being very accusatory, very derogatory, very negative, very mean-spirited as he's speaking to Peter and the apostles. And you're, you're trying to bring this guy's blood on us. But Peter... With undaunted courage, might I just say parenthetically, but Peter and the other apostles. Now, it's not just him and John now. It's the other. It's that coterie of men who are locked arm in arm, and they're standing there before the Sanhedrin. And Peter is the, is the mouthpiece, right? He's the one speaking. He answered, and he said, oh, 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 my word. Now, I want to tell you something. To say what he's about to say in church, that's really cool. And that's really easy, right? If you just come out of your connect group and you were surrounded by men and women like you who love God and love one another, or maybe you came out of the student ministry or the college ministry today, and, and you were to say, you know, guys, it's really more important that we obey God than man, you'd probably get this response, that's right. Amen. That's so very important. Let me tell you something. To say it in this arena to be able to say what I'm about to read to you in a moment, to remember the context, remember the historical situation. These people are bloodthirsty. They are ready to eliminate, to annihilate any residue of talk about this Jesus guy. And y'all are filling the whole city with your doctrine. And so Peter says, however, sir, we have to obey God rather than men. Whew. Come on. Wow. What a, what a statement. The God of our fathers. Now, oh my goodness, Peter's going to start preaching. Just hold on to your hat. He is about to give the most powerful sermon. And he's got his apostles standing next to him. But the audience that day, it's a small congregation. There's only 70 of them. But wow, what a message. He begins with identification. He identifies the God of our fathers. That would be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he moves right into resurrection. He raised up Jesus whom you murdered. <laughs> you murdered him by hanging him on a tree. Him God has exalted. 
You go from identification to resurrection to crucifixion now to exaltation. God has exalted him to his right hand, that place of preeminence and authority, to be the archegos, the prince and the savior. Now watch this, to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. And we are his martyrs. Where we get the English word a martyr. We are his witnesses today to these very things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So I want to walk you through this passage of scripture and just, and I know there's a lot of information, and, and I've got you an outline here in your in your worship guide. If you're following on our church app, it's there as well. You can type in the uh, the answers to the blanks there. But in, in the midst of so much information, I, I really pray that we, we don't get caught up in so much academics or theology and, and doctrine, though that is incredibly important. And that's God's mandate to me is to be a teacher, not just a preacher, but a teacher of the Word of God. And, and as you're taking notes today, and I really hope you've come to worship God with your minds today, because that's what we're going to do. But here's the thing, as you're taking the notes and you're jotting down the six-fold charismatic preaching of the apostles, and you're walking through this text with me, here's what I'm praying will happen, that God, that God will speak to you in the inner recesses of your soul, and He will begin to encourage you with words like this, saying, I was with the apostles and I will be with you. No matter what dark valley you're walking through, no matter what intimidating lion's den you find yourself in, as you take a stand for Jesus Christ, you're not alone. You are not alone. There are people all over the world who are with you and witnesses with you. And not only that, the Holy Spirit of God is with you. And he's testifying with you, in you, and through you. So I hope, I really hope and pray that this is more than just information, that this is a transformation of our lives where we jettison our intimidation and we remove that and we replace it with, with, with God's grace and God's power and, and his courage. Wouldn't it be awesome to say, like the apostles of old, what was said of Meriwether Lewis and Mr. Clark, that we, as the people of God, had undaunted unmitigated courage because of our love for the Lord and because of the Holy Spirit living within us. So first of all is the word accusation. There's a strong accusation here and you can feel it in the Sanhedrin, especially in Caiaphas, as he tells them, didn't I already tell you? And he, he's exactly right. In Acts 4.18, Peter and John appeared before them and they received the command from the high court, from the tribunal, that you must never speak again in this person's name. The Sanhedrin, remember? It's like the Supreme Court, the Senate, the Congress, the President, all rolled into one as far as Jewish politics. They ruled religion. They ruled politics. They ruled all of Israel. And they are under the, yeah, I know everybody's under the umbrella of Rome, but they're in, in Israel. These people are in authority. And you got to get just a piece of the jealousy and the, and the anger because they're saying, but it's your doctrine. It's your doctrine that has permeated the land and not our doctrine. Y'all better stop. Stop it. Because we don't like all this attention that you're getting. We deserve this attention. We deserve the accolades of the people. And how dare you preach in that guy's name and you try to bring his blood upon me. Do y'all hear it? Do you hear the accusation? The really, it, it just tempers on, on violence. And, and by the way, next time when we look at it, it says in verse 33, and when they heard this, they were furious, verse 33, and they plotted to kill the apostles. Notice with me the, the first thing under uh, accusation is disobedience. This was the high crime and misdemeanor that they had committed. They were disobedient to Caiaphas' command. It's interesting to me that the enemies of Christ were threatened. Do you see it in verse 28? They were threatened by, not, yes, they were 
not so much their disobedience, but their teaching. Watch this. Did we not strictly command you not to, look at that word, guys, just a second, to teach, to didasco? You know, I had a, one of my mentors years ago. He said, we got all kinds of preachers in, in America, but where are our teachers? And that really resonated with me. And I, I kind of was already had a proclivity and a propensity and kind of a bent toward teaching anyhow. But when I heard that, just it's almost like something welled up within me and said, yes, don't just be a herald and a preacher of the gospel, but when God gives you those few sacred moments on the Lord's day, make sure that you teach. Make sure that when the people come to hear you that they, they hear another voice, the voice of the Spirit, and they really walk away with an understanding, with a depth of discipleship. And I hope and pray that that is the case every time you come to Great Hills Baptist Church, that you come. Well, thank you. God bless you. Bless you. Um, I, I really do. I hope that when, when you leave, you'll say, you know, I've worshiped God, not just with my, with my soul, you know, my spirit and my emotion and that, the more effective domain of my life, but in my mind. And, you know, Jesus, he even said we should worship the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and with our mind and our strength. But it was the teaching that they especially accused them. And he said, do not teach anymore. And I, I wonder if, if, if there's that kind of depth and that kind of teaching does that upset the enemy? If you teach the Bible and you preach the Word of God, do, can, we, can we expect hell just to be quiet and silent when we as a congregation are under the banner of the Word of God, the truth of God, and I as your herald, as your preacher, as your teacher of the Word of God, can we expect the enemy of God just to be silent? Absolutely not, because that's the thing that he hates. That's the thing that he's intimidated by. There's just a little statement I wrote in my notes here. Nothing bombards the gates of hell like the teaching of God's Word in the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, He said, all authority has been given unto me. Now go and make disciples of all the nations and baptize them in the name, not names, because He's one God, a Trinitarian God, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Help me. Say it a little bit louder. Teaching. teaching, didasco, teaching them to obey. Jesus says, teach them everything that I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you. Oh, wow. I don't know about y'all, but that, just reading that again this morning as I was up studying this message, I was like, I underlined those words when Jesus said, I am with you. I am with you always. And it's interesting within this context of teaching and making disciples and going, Jesus provides his special presence with us even uh, to the end of the age. So teaching in his name. Now Caiaphas is in a very derogatory way. Don't teach in this person's name. Don't bring this man's blood upon us. But this is precisely what <laughs> Peter and the apostles are doing. They are being disobedient because they are teaching this. And the next letter there is doctrine. Did you see that in verse 28? You're teaching in this name and look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. Uh, did a case with, with this corpus of material, with this, this, this teaching about this man, Jesus. You, you have permeated and saturated the, the, the streets and the highways and the byways of Jerusalem with this guy. Why, what is it about you people that all you keep talking about is this Jesus? And, and Peter's going to spell it out for us in a moment. He's going he's to give us precisely what he and the early church, uh, you know, codified, if you will, as the charismatic preaching of the apostles. I'm going to give this to you if you're interested. Even if you're not interested, I'm going to give it to you. Okay, here it is. It's the sixfold primary features of the teaching of the apostles in the book of Acts. And really, you can see this kind of preaching and teaching moving all throughout church history. And it begins with this. Number one, C.H. Dodd helps us with this. As a theologian, he kind of captures this. He says, number one, they preach that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. 
Yeah, no wonder Jerusalem was filled with their doctrine because Peter and the apostles are going, can you look at your scroll of Isaiah? Can you look at your scroll of Micah? Can you go back to Genesis chapter 12? And they just preached Jesus throughout the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment. Number two, Jesus lived a perfect life and he did so many wonderful, miraculous things. He healed people. He helped people. He loved people. And so you're going to find out really quick in this charismatic preaching, what you have here is a very Christocentric sermon. It is, it's not anthrocentric, not man-centered. It's very Christ-centered. And this is what they would preach, church. You would say, but, but in America, man, that would be awful if I had to go to church every Sunday and just hear the same sermon over and over. And here's the deal. They would preach Christ and Him crucified. And they would preach Him resurrected and exalted and as the Prince and the Savior. And then they would say, and we are His witnesses and let's go and share this good news with, with the lost world. And so they, God just seemed to associate Himself with that kind of, of teaching. That's the first two. Number three, He died on a cross. Number four, he arose from the dead and he ascended back to the Father. Number five, he is coming again. That, that was one of the salient features of their preaching. Whenever you see the word preach in the Bible, oftentimes that, that is the Greek word karux. And that's where I'm getting this charismatic. This karux means somebody who is a herald, somebody who announces significant news. The herald, the karux, he would literally be that person at the head of the train of the victorious pageantry of the general of the Roman army. The general would be here and all of his army would be here and there would be a person in the front going, he's here. We have conquered our enemies and Rome is victorious. He was called the Carux. He was the herald. And the early church is looking at that going, well, my land. If they can do that for a human general, and Augustine did this. Augustine, the, one of the greatest of the theologians who died in AD 30, the Bishop of Hippo, Africa, he said this. In his book on Christian doctrine, he said, if the secular humanist people, if they can take the, you know, they, they can take what they believe so passionately and they can communicate it with eloquence and with power, why can't the church? Isn't that powerful? I mean, we take that for granted today that your preachers, that your teachers, that they are to be educated, they are to be learned, they are to study, whether it's an official uh, seminary education or if it's an education on their knees and in the Word of God, they, they study and they prepare. And you anticipate that. And, and Augustine was going, well, the secular people do that and they do it to please man. How much more should a preacher of the gospel do it to please God? And so we're going to give God our best and we're going to preach this gospel. And the last thing, the six points of this Charismatic preaching is this, and I love this. Number five, Jesus is coming again. Number six, therefore repent and believe the gospel. Wow. So that's the doctrine. The Caiaphas calls it, you teach in this name and you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. And that's the doctrine that the early church preached. Which led to a very distressing situation for them. And that's number, that's letter C, distressed. Verse 28 says, and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. Before I forget, let me, let me just read Matthew 27, 25. Because that is precisely what the Sanhedrin had asked for when they crucified Jesus. And all the people answered and they said, his blood be on us. And there they are, the people. I mean, the Jewish people, all of them are saying, let his blood be on us and on our children. And they crucified him. And here, here Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin are saying, you're trying to bring this guy's blood on us as if we're culpable, as if we're guilty, as if we had done something wrong. And Peter says, you are guilty because it was as if you had taken him with your own hands and crucified him. Your mock trial, your false accusations, you, you, you brought him before you at night. You're not even supposed to meet at night and you did all of these things. And Peter is preaching 
And they call this the talionis. It's the law of retaliation. It's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And so the high priest, watch this. This is very, very fascinating. The high priest, Caiaphas, is interrogating the disciples, the apostles. And he is telling them, listen to me. You're, you're trying to make us out that we're the bad people. And if you're not careful, the whole populace is going to turn on us and because we killed your Messiah, they're going to try to kill us. And, and I was reading that going, wow. And then I read this one commentary that put it like this. It's very powerful. The high priest, in essence, was saying, you're trying to get us killed for responsibility in this man's death. However, Peter was not trying to get the leaders killed. He was trying to get them saved. Wow. He was trying to get them saved. He was trying the Sanhedrin to say, yes, you're guilty, but even now in your guilt and in your sin, if you will confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, he will cleanse you from all your sins and you can be on your way to heaven like us. So now I want to just move into what, I'm, what I've entitled the second part of the sermon, the apologetic. And whenever you see the word apologetic, please don't think of the word apology because it's more, it's not that at all. Apologetics is a defense, okay? And I know most of you know that, but some of you may not know that. Oftentimes you look at the word apologize, and that's confessing something that we've done wrong and we're asking for forgiveness, but that is not what this is. When Peter said in 1 Peter 3, 15, watch this. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give an apologia is the Greek word, to give a defense, a defense to everybody who asks you a reason for the hope that is within you with meekness and with fear or with gentleness and respect. So here's his bold presentation in verses 29 through 30. It begins with this word, but Peter. Isn't it interesting? Does anybody find that fascinating that Peter is the spokesperson, not Andrew, Philip, or John, but it's Peter. Why would it be Peter? And here's, here's my, my hypothesis. I believe it's Peter because Peter had messed up so royally. He had cursed. He had left Jesus. He had abandoned the disciples. Remember, he said, I'm going fishing, forget this stuff. And I believe it's Peter because maybe God would say to you today, if I can forgive Peter, I can forgive you. And if Peter denied me and you denied me, I will give you another chance. So there Peter is. There's two things that have happened to Peter that changed his life forever. Number one, he had, thank you God, he had received the forgiveness of Jesus and he had been invaded by the Holy Spirit. And when those two things happen to a mere mortal woman or man. When you have received the forgiveness of God, you are no longer alienated from your creator. You have been rightly related to God through the blood of Jesus. And at that moment, the Holy Spirit of God comes within you. Let me tell you something, friend. You, <laughs> you are far greater than what you even realize because it's the Spirit of God that lives within you. You're no longer alienated. You are one, you've been adopted into God's heavenly family. And I just really believe that it's Peter in Acts 1 through 12 because God wants you and me to see today in 2019 that if he could do it in Peter, then he can surely do it uh, for us. So I want to walk you through his, his sermon, this apologetic proper, the contents of his sermon. One writer says this, the focus is all about Jesus. So if you love Jesus for the next few minutes and you really just love to see him bragged on and loved and preached about, you're really going to enjoy the next few minutes. Uh, you say, not too many minutes, right, Brother Danny? Not, not too many minutes, but, but we got a few minutes. It's a very Christocentric, Christological sermon. And it begins with well, his allegiance. They, they've already said we, but Peter says... But, and the other apostles answered, but we ought to obey God rather than men. So they're defining, before he even begins to preach proper, he's saying, our allegiance belongs to uh, Jesus Christ. Y'all put us on the horns of a dilemma. You've told us, and we understand it. 
that you have expressly prohibited us from preaching in his name. And yet we have a divine commission from Jesus himself who said in the great commission, be my witnesses. And in the Acts 1.8, he says, the Holy Spirit comes, you'll be my witness. So Peter's like, guys, y'all put us in a very difficult situation. Y'all are making us decide today whether we're going to obey you and be quiet and not talk about him anymore, or we're going to have to obey God and let the chips fall where they may, and we got to continue to preach his name. And I just want y'all to know something before I go any further, Peter would say, we are choosing to obey God. We're going to obey God and we're not going to obey man. And those words are easy for me and you to say in Austin, Texas, in America, but it was incredibly difficult for them to say then, just like it's difficult in China today, in North Korea today, in many parts of Europe today. It could be very, very costly for us to say, we will not adhere or capitulate or acquiesce to man's dictates. Rather, we must obey our heavenly father. And I pray, I really pray that you and I will have that kind of fortitude, that kind of spiritual wherewithal, if we're put on the spot, that we'll be able to say, I know what y'all want me to say. I know, I know you want me to be quiet and quit talking about what the Bible says about marriage. And I know, want you, I know y'all want me to be quiet talking about how sacred life is in the womb, but I just want to tell you something. I've got to obey God more than I got to obey you. Now you say that, and I say that. Just, just, just put in your minds a, a big old stick, just churning the, the, the hell and the demons and just start watching them float up and say, who said that? Who said that? And they just, and they target you. Say, wow, man, that's encouraging. I think I'll just shut up. You know, I, I don't want demons smoking out of hell targeting me. I think I'll just, I just won't take a stand. And that's what most of us do. But may God help us. He may help us say, no, we come what may, the gates of hell unleashed upon us. But Jesus said they're not going to prevail against us. And so we're going to speak his name. We're going to take a stand for the things that, that matter. So here, here it is. Here's the six-part sermon. Number one, it begins with identification. Peter clearly identifies about whom he is speaking when he says, the God of our fathers. That would be Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He is preaching to the choir. You're talking about preaching to the choir. I mean, this is literally the choir of Jerusalem. This is that coterie of men, the Sanhedrin and Peter has the audacity to lecture them about the God of their fathers. <laughs> and Peter said, that's right, because y'all need to put the two together. You're thinking the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is somebody and somebody totally different and somebody who's absolutely contrary, this Jesus. And I'm trying to tell you they're one and the same and that the father loved us so much that he sent his son, Jesus. And so let me just go on record to say, I'm not talking about two different gods. I'm talking about the one God. This is Peter now. He's preaching. He's saying the God of our, of our fathers. And I don't think it was lost on them. He said he raised up Jesus whom you murdered. Now that moves, that speaks to me of resurrection. One writer whom I deeply love and respect, I have to disagree with him at this point, but F.F. Bruce says he believes in Peter's message now, he's saying that God raised up Jesus like he raised up David or like he raised up Moses or like he raised up somebody and, and began to use them. And that could be true, and, and, and there's no doubt that it's true in the sense that God did raise up Jesus, but I think here, because the cardinal tenet of Christianity is the resurrection, I think Peter, I think he's just gone right there because that's the thing. That's the thing that separates Jesus from everybody. If he really rose from the dead, then we all must bow down and worship him because nobody rises from the dead unless they're deity, unless they're God. And so Peter, he's preaching and he's saying, this Jesus whom God raised from the dead. Now notice he doesn't say, the man upstairs, or I tip my hat to the guy, the big guy upstairs, you know, or, or that man. Or, no, he, he's, he's very clear, he's saying, God, Jesus, resurrection. Powerful, powerful sermon. And then number three, he says, crucifixion. Whom you, 
you guilty rascals, you have crucified him. You, you murdered him by hanging him on a tree. One writer says, Peter insists that they are as guilty as if they had killed him with their own hands. The son of God was crucified at the hands of lawless men. And I thought about Charles Wesley's hymn at this point, amazing love. How could it be? If thou, my God, shouldst die for me, the crucifixion of the Son of God had done nothing wrong. He did everything right. It's absolutely unequivocally under the obedience of his heavenly Father. And yet there he is with arms stretched out impaled on a stick of wood and his feet and then his side is pierced through and his blood pours out of his body and the son of God, the gift of heaven, the pearl of heaven himself is crucified between two thieves, between two robbers. That is our hope. That is the only hope for mankind that if somebody, the God man, would love us so much that he would lay down his life for us, then we could be forgiven of our sins and our sins are so much that it would take the royal blood of God to cleanse us and that's precisely what God gave us on the cross. He gave us his son who shed his blood so that you and I could be forgiven of our sins. Hallelujah. What a savior. Amazing love. Jesus, how could it be? How my God would die for a sinful person like me. But it's the truth and it's the hope of all mankind. Next, Peter goes on to say, but let me tell you something. Not only did he die and not only did he rise, but he is exalted. In verse 31, it says, him, God has exalted. I call this part of the sermon exaltation. He's exalted to his right hand to be the archegos. This is an interesting word. It refers to somebody who is an author or an originator or a pioneer of something. You think Meriwether Lewis was a pioneer. Watch this. Jesus is the pioneer of the new covenant. He is called the prince. Did y'all see that? This is this word archegos and it means the pioneer, the originator. It's the same Greek word used in Hebrews 2.10 and it's translated captain. Stay with me. Come on, you got this. Don't quit. Don't give up. You got it. Keep worshiping. Keep thinking. It's the same word used in Hebrews 2.10, translated captain. It's the same word used in Hebrews 12.2, translated author. Now watch this. All three of those references to Archegos in our New Testament that I just shared with you, they have one thing in common. Man, they have suffering in common. Suffering. That before Jesus Christ would be exalted, he would suffer. And then after he suffered, God the Father exalts him to the right hand of prominence and preeminence. And now he, he's our prince. Wow. What a gospel. What a message. Thank you, Peter, for preaching it. And then in verse 31, it says, Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and to be our Savior. And so number five, you have the word salvation. It's interesting that Caiaphas and the rest of them would not even mention his name. But here Peter is not only mentioning his name, but he's mentioning his fame and who he is and why he came. He's mentioning he's a prince. He's a savior. He's a crucified Messiah. He's resurrected from the dead. He's exalted on high. Mm, man, what a gospel. Man, what a sermon he is preaching. Come on now, help me, Great Hills Baptist Church. If Peter can do that then and be threatened within an inch of his life, then surely a child of God in the freedom of Austin, Texas can take a stand and speak on behalf of Christ. Surely we can. Surely we can. If they can do it in that setting, absolutely I can do it in my setting. He, he talks about salvation. There's Matthew 1 21, the angel says, and she will bring forth a son and you will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So we're in verse 31. Y'all like, are looking at me going, well, if you're in verse 31, that means you only got one more verse, right? That's exactly right. Some of y'all saying that's the best news I heard all morning. I, 
We're almost done with this uh, theological enterprise here, the seminary education that we're receiving. Um, yeah. Thank you, brother. It might just be me and you, if you but we'll, we'll, we'll stick around. All right, so prince and savior, and watch this, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Man. Peter said, it is God who will give you the grace and the kindness to repent. Isn't that beautiful? Salvation is a mysterious thing. And the older I get and the more I preach, the more I appreciate the sovereignty of God. It's not by works of righteousness that I've done, but it's according to his mercy. He saved us. Paul said it like this in Romans 2, 4, that it's the goodness of God. It's the, it's the, it's the kindness of God that would lead you to repent. Isn't that amazing? That God loves you so much that in his goodness and in his favor towards you, he presents Jesus Christ to you as so beautiful and so majestic that you fall on your knees and you go, my Lord and my King and God, he started all of that in your heart. And he, he loved you so much that he would allow Jesus Christ to be presented to you in such beauty and in such glory that you can't help but fall on your face before God and embrace him as your King. Wow, what a Savior. It's what he did to me when I was 19 years of age. I, I couldn't say no. I was standing in the face, in the presence of a heavenly God that loved me. And, and I had an opportunity to say, would you please forgive me of all this junk and all my sin? And God said, that's why I came. And he took my sin. And in, and in place of my sin, he put his Holy Spirit. And the Bible says at that moment, I was, I was born again. And it was the kindness of God. Mercy. I don't know why this is getting on me so much. In all my rehearsals of this sermon, the many, many times I preached this this week, I never was affected like this. But there's something about the kindness of God. Some of you are listening today, and you, you're not there, and I know it. There's no remorse. There's no conviction. There's no you standing before a holy God going, man, I'm in big, big trouble. I deserve hell. But then again, there are some. And the Spirit of God, he is, He's chosen you, and He's like drilling down on you. And He's going, I'm coming for you. <laughs> I'm coming for you. All you got to do is believe. All you got to do is say, God, I'm a sinner. Forgive me with the royal blood of your son, and I want, to, I want you to come into my life. And God says, bam, and he will. It's called the gospel. It's the good news. Okay, now that I've shared verse 31, let me share verse 32, and we will be done. And we are, Peter says, we are his witnesses. I call this dedication. We are his martyrs, Okay of these things. Now please, church, Great Hills Baptist Church family, I know it's 12 o'clock, but you got to look at verse 32 one more time when it says these things, the antecedent, please don't miss this. It's the gospel. Are you with me? It's the gospel. You said, wait a minute, is it all the Old Testament prophecy? He, he lived a good life and he, he, he was a perfect, he died on a cross, he arose from the dead, he ascended to the Father. Uh, I'm to believe in him, he's coming back. That's it. All those things that are tied up into these things. And Peter says, this is who we witness to. These things have changed our life and, and we're never the same. And, and it's these things, this gospel message that we are proclaiming to you and we are his Witnesses, we are sold out. We're dedicated followers of Christ, come what may, and come did may. All of them would die a violent death. 
crucified death, a stoning death, except John. John would be exiled on this rock quarry of an island that I'm going to get to go back and I hope some of you will go with me. It's, it's this remarkable island of rock. And, and John was sent there with, with murderers and rapists. It was a Roman penal colony, a penitentiary. And, and it was there that John wrote Revelation. But the other 10 or 11, they all died. Violent deaths. And we are his witnesses. But I, I, can't, I can't go without looking at the last part. And, and Peter says, and so is the Holy Spirit. Not only are we human witnesses, but the, the, the divine himself is a witness. Do you see that? Is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Now, John 15, 26 and 27 is a great commentary on Acts chapter 5, verse 32. And it says this, but when he, the helper, the Holy Spirit comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, watch this, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, are y'all with me? He will testify of me. The Holy Spirit will testify of Jesus. And you also, you see the, you see the divine human play here? The Holy Spirit testifies and he uses humans. And you also, humanity will be witnesses because you have been with me from the beginning. And then when we believe the Holy Spirit who's convicting us and been given to us, he's given to those who, watch this, verse 32, last thing, who obey him. Wow. I, I think the most, the most challenging, convicting verse in all the Bible for me is this one. It's Matthew 7, 21, when Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but it's he who, say that word with me, church, does. Peter put it like this, whom God has given to those who obey him. And Jesus put it like this, he who obeys or does the will of my Father in heaven. And here's Y'all going to say, you sound like a good Baptist at this point. No, I hope I'm a good Bible student at this point. That if I really believe, and Jesus Christ is, is really has become my Savior and my God, then I will not be perfect. I will have bumps along the way. I will have roadblocks and detours and some, some hard times. Absolutely. But watch this. No matter how much I can stray or... How much, how many difficult I have, I'm, I'm, I'm always on his path. And I'm always coming back to his teaching, to clear biblical teaching. What about the person who says, yeah, but I've become a Christian, but my ethics and my morals is absolutely opposite of what scripture teaches. Then I'm just going to say what Jesus said. It's the person who does my will. If you have a hard time with that, you need to take that up with Jesus. Okay, because I didn't say it. It's the person who does the will of my Father, who is obedient to God. You say, well, you're, you're talking about being perfect. No. But First John says, he who continually, habitually lives in sin is not born of God. But if you are born of the Spirit of God, hey, let me tell you all something. I know I'm a Christian because as soon as I get out of line, the, <laughs> the Holy Spirit and my wife, they correct me. I mean, it's, an, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. And so, you know, and it's God's chastisement. It's God saying, you, or this, you can be saved and you can rebel and you will be the most miserable person on this planet. You will be so miserable because you know better. You, the Spirit of God has touched you and, 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 you're, and you're trying to walk away and the Spirit of God just keeps, and it's, my dad used to tell me this, the most miserable person in the world is a Christian who's out of fellowship with God. Oh, man. So I'm going to pray for you as we have our invitation today. And I thank you for listening. Thank you for staying with me as we went through Peter's powerful sermon. And I hope, and I just can only hope and pray, that it has impacted you in, in the way that it was meant to be. If you're here today and you are being drawn by the Spirit of God, his kindness is leading you to repentance, then I'm encouraging you now, please, please, say yes, Lord, yes. 
I believe, I repent, I accept you as my Savior. And I'm going to invite you to do that right now. If you're here today and you say, well, I'm not really sure, then let's get sure. Well, there's never been a time when I've really surrendered my life. To, let's do it now. And it would go something like this, dear God in heaven, I believe. I believe. I trust you. Please forgive me of my sins. I, I, I repent. Take me as your child. If you meant that, when you prayed that, I'm telling you, it is, a, it is a majestic, miraculous moment. The Spirit of God comes within you. You are born again, and your life is changed. And then you'll want to obey Him. You'll want to walk with God. You'll want to be in fellowship with God's people. So it begins, you know, every journey begins with an inception. There's a Genesis embryonic moment. There's a moment in time when the journey begins. And I'm just praying that that moment happened to you today. As you walk with him, some of you are walking at a guilty distance, and that is very painful, isn't it? Why don't you come back? Won't you allow the Spirit of God just to woo you back into fellowship with God, with his people, with his word, with his fellowship? So with your heads bowed and with your eyes closed, I'm, I'm going to pray for you. And then we're going to have the invitation. We invite you to come. We invite you to pray. We invite you to do whatever God puts it upon your heart to do. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus at this sacred moment, that, Father, there will be a commitment of life, a surrender of life on behalf of those who have listened here physically and tangibly, they're present. But also, Lord, the many who watch and, and listen, whether it's a, a live stream or a podcast or, God, I pray that you would use this message far greater ways, Lord, that we could ever think or ask or imagine because, God, it's just the gospel. It is the gospel. Thank you, Lord, that Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God and the salvation of everybody who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, for it is written, the just shall live by faith. Holy Spirit of God, save, I pray. Convict, draw to yourself. In Jesus' name I pray and I believe. Amen. Amen. I invite you to stand. Terry's going to come and lead us.